now. This is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Detten and Shorty and of course our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now first up as we continue the build up to the Women's World Cup we'll take a look at the next phase of the Matildas preparation for the event. The Cup of Nations announced this week which will see Australia joined by fellow contestants Spain, Jamaica and the Czech Republic. The tournament kicks off on February the 16th in Gosford and will be played exclusively in New South Wales with other venues in Newcastle and Parramatta. Just back from Qatar himself he ESPN and The Guardian's Joey Lynch will join us to take a look at what we can expect to see as the clock ticks down to the national side's moment of truth in July. Then, in what has been an interview we've been wanting to secure for some time, we'll talk to one of the best analysts in the game from The Guardian, Jonathan Wilson, to look at what is shaping to be an edge-of-the-seat second-half Premier League season, and we'll wrap it up with World Cup Corner. Edge, jam-packed show today. Really looking forward to that chat with Jonathan Wilson, but uh, um, Joey, before that. Absolutely, Rob. Yeah, Jonathan Wilson, uh, love reading his work uh, wherever he writes um, uh, yeah he's got some uh, forthright views it'll be interesting to see and uh, looking forward to uh, the rest of the show and in particular Joey who's got a lot of insight into just how the Matildas are going to prepare and of course talking to my great mate uh, Derek Dyson uh, we're Arsenal fans we're smiling uh, the lid's loosening uh, we're just life's life's grand Rob life's grand Derek you must have some comment on that yeah I, I, I just uh think you've got to enjoy it for what it is, uh, Mike. It's been a long time coming. We've been very patient with this team and, uh, uh, you know, they're rewarding us now with, you know, playing brilliant football. Uh, everything about Arteta has vindicated. I, I was very dubious about it when we finished, um, you know, when we collapsed out of the title or the, the Champions League uh, places last season. But, you know, it's just fabulous to watch. Good young team, youngest average uh, age in the Premier League as well. Um, so lots of potential there to keep it going. All right, Willem, well, why don't you fire us away, mate? you got a jam-packed news uh, rundown for us. I certainly do, Rob, and there will be plenty of time for Arsenal. But we'll start with the Matildas. They're going to host a six-match Cup of Nations tournament in New South Wales next month, meeting Spain, Jamaica and the Czech Republic. Gosford, Sydney and Newcastle will host doubleheader match days from Feb 16 with the top side crowned Cup champions in Newcastle on Feb 20. Two. Michael running with a, uh, a table format there. Uh, the governing bodies also, that being FIFA, looking to move the Matildas World Cup opener against Ireland uh, to Sydney's Olympic Stadium at an increase of 40,000 seats. That seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Sounds like it's going to happen. Uh, but the Cup of Nations, more yeah, high-quality football with something on the line in the lead-up. Absolutely, and it's all about the preparation for the Matildas. So let's hope that they are very useful matches, that uh, some of the players that need to get some form uh, can do that, and some of the players that are already in form stick around. And uh, absolute no-brainer move move uh, from Allianz over to uh, Stadium Australia, the the big one, uh, the, the opening match of the FIFA Women's World Cup. I'm a bit surprised it wasn't scheduled there in the first place, but that's a very good decision uh, by FIFA and uh, the organising uh, administrators uh, get as many Australian fans into that stadium for the opening match against Ireland as we can possibly muster. And that's going to help them move towards their stated goal of 1.5 million people through the gates across the tournament. They've sold 500,000 tickets so far, and they've also confirmed that no matches allocation is actually exhausted at this point. So some consternation, particularly among Australian fans, simply as or and New Zealand fans as well, uh, that maybe. Tickets had been sort of sold on the sly in the middle of the night, but no, no allocation is exhausted and more are on the way. Uh, so, Rob, the record as it stands uh, comes from Canada's 2015 Women's World Cup. That was the seventh edition of the tournament. Uh, 1.35 million they had through uh, the turnstiles. 1.5 million, you'd think that they're well on track at this point, especially considering the expanded tournament this time around. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's a puzzling response because I've been online and uh, and I've found some of uh, my searches uh, telling me that allocations are exhausted for some of the Matildas matches, so we'll have to explore that one a little bit more. But uh, we've got, I think they've priced it right, um, similar to the Women's World Cup a few years ago in Australia where they almost broke the record for uh, a, a, a cricket, uh, a women's one-day international cricket match at the MCG. So uh, I think we'd all agree that we'd rather see stadiums of enthusiastic fans supporting nations. And uh, we go back to the, to the Asian Cup where there was some fantastic uh, crowd support in in uh, in Canberra, for example, sake with uh, the diaspora of various Asian nations. So, you know, we're, we're going to see that emerge throughout the course of this World Cup, and it's going to be part of the fun and the excitement of the build-up. The locals uh, who uh, who are supporting the teams of their heritage as much as the the visiting fans as well. Sorry, I should just clarify. Tickets might be uh, exhausted at the minute. I'm not saying you can just jump on and buy tickets uh, mm. anywhere right now, but what they are sort of insinuating is that there are more sort of releases uh, mm. up the sleeve. So we'll see how it plays out, but all looking positive on the ticket sales front. Thailand have won a record seventh AFLF championship, edging Vietnam 3-2 on aggregate across the two-legged final. Two all after the opening leg in Hanoi, the Elephants found the decisive goal in Rang Sit on 24 minutes through Tiraton Bun Matan. Thailand are Southeast Asian champions, as I said, for the seventh time. Michael, Singapore sits second with four and Vietnam third with two. So Thailand opening up a little bit of a gap. You've lived it this week. How's it been over there? Been fantastic. I went out to the match and uh, enjoyed every single moment of it. Incredible atmosphere. Asian football is alive. There's a World Cup spot they're all getting ready to compete for. And uh, and it's a great format of this tournament, home and away legs. Um, the Thais got the job done in a very... Uh, uneven and boggy surface in Hanoi, Vietnam, where there'd been a lot of rain. And uh, and they welcomed it at home. And when they got to play it on the deck, they uh, scored uh, an early goal and then um, uh, did the old-fashioned park the bus and hung on. And there was a fair bit of shithousery from the ties uh, to, uh, to, to soak up the clock? Absolutely. Uh, they were wasting time and uh, were as good as any of the West Asian uh, na- nations that I've had the pleasure of uh, witnessing live doing the same thing. So uh, well done, Thailand. Uh, and no, uh, I don't really, um, um, I'm not denigrating that tactic at all. Uh, there's a lot on the line and um, obviously uh, beating your rival Vietnam to lift the seventh uh, Tiger Cup title. Why wouldn't you want to do that? That also brings the end of the line for Vietnam's manager Park Hang Seo, the, uh, I don't know, rather famous uh, South Korean manager. He was Gus Hiddink's assistant uh, with his home nation as they went all the way to the semi-finals at the 2002 World Cup. And he's done uh, a fair bit for Vietnamese football over the past five years by all reports. So not quite the ending he wanted there, but certainly held in high regard uh, in Asian football more broadly, as well as Vietnam and in his homeland. Derby weekend in the English Premier League. Man United, Arsenal and Nottingham Forest, the big winners. United have closed the gap on Man City to a point following a controversial come-from-behind win. Plenty on that later in the program. Arsenal took the opportunity to extend their lead to eight points with a 2-0 win over Tottenham. The first time they've done that since 2003-04. And Derek, don't forget Forest, Tuna wins over Leicester in the East Midlands derby. Uh, We had Rob Tanner on when uh, Forest were promoted and he said Leicester will be happy to welcome that uh, local rivalry that has been lacking during their time in the league, uh, but maybe not the case. No, they won't be welcoming it anymore, Willem, because that was a great result for Forest. And I think we all ridiculed Forest at the start of the season with their 22 signings and... And then when they offered the new man- the manager a new a new contract, um, but they've really got their season going. They're actually sitting in a, you know, on twenty points in the league table. That's not comfortable. They they need to keep going, but they're certainly um, out of the clutches of a few of, a few of the teams uh, below them. And as we all talk about in stoppage time, our other uh, podcast that will release later in the week, their Leicester City manager is the man who's under pressure, Brendan Rodgers. Just want to ask you quickly about Mikhailo Mudrik as well, Derek, in a bit of uh, transfer news. He's probably been the headline this week. From Shakhtar Donetsk to Chelsea for initial £62 million. Uh, that smashes the previous record fee commanded by a Ukrainian club. Shakhtar president Rina Akhmatov has pledged £22 million, although that will be in euros by the time it gets there, uh, to their nation's war effort. So that is, uh, that's certainly a big positive uh, coming out of this story. But the negative, I suppose, from Arsenal... Arsenal's point of view is that Mudrik, well, it was a bit of a bidding war in the end and Arsenal didn't want to play ball. So he does head there. Uh, in my day job, I work with a diehard gunner who said, well, if he wants to uh, languish in 10th as opposed to up the top of the tree, that's his decision. Uh, that might be a churlish take. He can seriously play, Derek. Uh, how do you feel that this has not gone Arsenal's way? 
No, it's um, it's you know, it's disappointing. Uh, you know, it's not the first time, and it won't be the last time that Chelsea have just looked at our transfer strategy and uh, poached the player we've been looking at. It's a story as old as as old as time. But um, I don't know. It was Mudrick's decision per se. He wanted to come to Arsenal, but ultimately Shakhtar Donetsk are the ultimate hagglers when it comes to their players, and they, you know, Chelsea would were gullible enough to. Offer the player, uh, they offer offer more money, uh, but then also um, the player has been given an eight and a half year contract, which will take him to 2020, 2030 or something. Like that. Where, where are we all going to be in twenty thirty one when Mudrić is still playing for Chelsea? So, look, I, I felt like Arsenal did uh, it was a great statement just by going out and winning um, again and showing that the squad is in harmony. We we obviously need to reinforce the. The um, the squad depth is paper thin. Once you get through, um, you know some of the starters, the drop down in quality is significant. I believe we're now looking at Declan Rice, no doubt. Chelsea and Todd Bowley will have leapt out of bed or, you know, dived for the phone to put a bid in for Declan Rice. Maybe we need to have like a stalking horse strategy, or we should just start going in for ridiculous players and and keep our uh, transfer stuff under wraps. But yeah, we'll see how Madrid goes. Soccerism until the central for the Green and Gold Army. Quickly to finish, Sam Kerr once again delivers for Chelsea. Uh, the big clash there at the top of the English Women's Super League between Arsenal and the Blues. Uh, heading home at 89th minute leveler, which keeps uh, Chelsea top of the tree before 47,000 at the Emirates, if you don't mind. Uh, the Aussie ranks of the UK have grown plus one. Remy Seamson's joined Leicester City for the rest of the campaign. Uh, they're bottom, so that could work in Remy's favour. And Garang Quoll, Michael to finish, he's hit the ground running with Hart, came off the bench, set up what should have been a, uh, a second. His, his teammate there just shanked it just wide of the post, but very promising signs to get started. Yeah, good, uh, signs for young Garang, who um, will, yeah, he'll, he'll know he's alive in the Scottish Premier League. They'll try and uh, whack him from time to time. And uh, could someone uh, get a torch over to our good friend Derek in Heelsville? He uh, desperately needs a bit of light over, over there. He's, uh, he's battling on, Rob. Matty Bryan, great news as well to close. RZ Alkmaar in the Eredivisie 18-month deal. Uh, we know Matty's quality. Hopefully he can get some stability and back to his best. No, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, Matty was great in the World Cup and uh, he's a, you know, a solid and um, and, and uh, efficient and reliable keeper at his right level. And uh, and so that's great news for Matty. And just, just to, to, to bring our listeners into the loop of what we're actually seeing here, because this is, uh, after all, an audio platform, Michael, that uh, they cannot see that Derek's has a power outage in the Heelsville Sanctuary. And uh, and he's sitting well, there in what looks like Derek's a black professionalism, hole. Rob, um, he's just uh, marched on despite the power failure. He's mm-hmm. just not missing a beat. It's good to see. Good, uh, good Arsenal people, we just march on, mate. No, he's podcasting by barbecue light as he just throws the uh, Hoyt's Herbs and Spices chicken on oh, uh, for dinner. Nice. So we'll play it on. Look at that. Derek, um, are you just going to take the, the praise there and uh, just gl- gloat in it? Or uh, do you have any sort of response before we wrap this up? Well, I don't know if anyone can hear, but it's now biblical rain outside as well. And, oh, look, I've worked in the media for a long time and you have to expect the unexpected and have a plan B. So I'm current, currently tethering off my phone because <laughs> obviously the internet is down there's no lights in the house, and thankfully my battery on my laptop is quite charged. So let's see if I can make it through the show, gents. Excellent. Well done, Derek. You are a trooper, that's for sure. All right, boys. Well, let's just wrap this up because we've got a couple of great chats coming up. First of all, with uh, our good mate Joey Lynch from ESPN and The Guardian. Uh, we talked to Tracy Holmes last week about what we felt was a bit of a slow burn, but in the week since, uh, there, there's been some good news stories emerging. You know, ticket sales are up, uh, relocation of games, and, uh, and we're thinking uh, that it's only and we know it will only get uh, more uh, exciting from here as the World Cup uh, comes ever closer. Joey Lynch next on Box to Box. Hey, Willem, I didn't hear you. Give me a bit of woo-woo. Woo-hoo! That's good. Canvas Warehouse, it, uh, well, it's a couple of weeks into the new year, but you can still get your half-price Nature Zone. Uh, the Nature Zone Super B Complex 75 tablets, uh, now 14.49 edge. Uh, you'd be running low on your supplies. I think you mentioned in your, your little vanity pack there that uh, uh, the, the big stock up that you did before you headed over to Qatar is usually dwindling dry. It's a crisis, Rob. It's a crisis. No, no. Oh, you, you don't look real um, stressed. You look actually quite relaxed, um, the, the post-World Cup edge. You must be taking that Super Beak complex. And maybe you're even taking the Nature Zone Complete Sleep Advance, the 60 tablets for $22.24, and the Nature Zone Glucosamine. You, I think you uh, you mentioned to us that you were knocking the ball around with a couple of the local kids. Uh, those joints of yours, I think they've seen I better days. What, 
glucosamine. I need a new hip after my uh, my unfortunate uh, AVT performance. But I, no, my team didn't lose. I got back up. I finished the game, but I'm paying the price. <laughs> well, do you take the chondroitin, mate, or your body's still a young temple? You wouldn't need it just yet. No, I don't need the chondroitin just yet, Rob, but when I do, I know exactly where it is, and that's Chemist Warehouse. Every yeah. time I walk into that joint, I smile, I look at the kind staff in the blue shirts, and I sing the jingle as I want to. Oh, yeah. Why pay more? They look at me like I'm off my head. Uh, mm-hmm. I think about my good friends, Rob and Michael. Wish you were there to sing the jingle with me. You're not, but I still walk out happy. See, look at that. This is a guy ad-libbing through a live reading just only the way a true media professional can. Outstanding. Well, 320 tablets, 29.99. The Nature Zone, glucosamine, sulfate, and chondroitin of, of the offering includes box sizes. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings. They are every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. We continue the lead up to the Women's World Cup and had a good chat with Tracy Holmes from the ABC last week about what at the time we perceived was a, a little of a slow burn. But then some news started to emerge this week that the uh, opening match of the tournament has been moved from uh, the Sydney Football Stadium to Homebush and that the Cup of Nations has been announced exclusively in Sydney. But that's the way things these days with deals with New South Wales State Government uh, uh, winning that uh, tournament for them. But uh, to talk through uh, the next phase of the preparation and what we can expect from this tournament, which starts in a month and and our expectations, reasonable or otherwise, we uh, are looking forward to that tournament uh, as it ticks down to to the big uh, event, which eventually will kick off in July. We'll have a chat now to ESPN's Joey Lynch, good friend of the show. How are you, Joey? I'm going very well. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. And uh, you you mentioning their uh, destination, New South Wales, partnering with the Matildas. I should actually have a yarn out in The Guardian about how and where... Socceroos and Matildas games are staged that by the time this is out should be out for your listeners to read. Well, can you give us a little teaser into it before we we climb into it, mate? What are we, what are we going to read in your article? Basically, I've broken down and I've received the data from Football Australia about every game played in Australia since 2010 by the Matildas and the Socceroos, and I've broken down all the data, which states which cities host the most Uh, national team games and then got some word from Football Australia as to how at least the James Johnson administration uh, determines where games go. Is there anything obvious or unexpected that uh, that we'll we'll see in this article? Uh, I think the obvious uh, is that New South Wales is the premier hosting destination for both the uh, Matildas and the Socceroos. Uh, But in fact, when it comes to Sydney, uh, it's the Socceroos that spends more time there actually than the Matildas, which mm. coming into it, I actually thought it would be the inverse. But since 2010, it's actually been the Socceroos that play in Sydney more. Yeah, no, interesting. Well, they, I mean, you look at everything from the Asian Cup final to the most recent big World Cup qualifiers. Uh, there have been a couple scattered around in recent times, but it certainly seems to be centralised. And uh, I suppose the thing is uh, we, we, we've long argued for commercial viability within the game in this country. And, uh, and whilst... You know, we do criticise where we all collectively think criticism is due. Um, there are occasions where we have to accept, whether we like it or not, that there's a commercial reality to these things. And uh, you know, what do they say? He who piper uh, calls, who he who pays the piper calls the tune. I think it is, mate. But uh, yeah. look, maybe that's a conversation for another day, and we'll we'll read that article of, of yours. Uh, that's definitely for sure in, in ESPN. But but in the Guardian, actually, in the Guardian. the Guardian. Apologies for that, mate. Definitely in the Guardian in our favour. Well, we're talking to Jonathan Wilson a little later on in the show from that very publication, mate. Great man that he is. So, Joey, um, look, last time we talked about this, I think we were still, you know, not quite in the depths of despair, but we weren't uh, happy with the way the Matildas uh, were, were going. They, uh, they'd underperformed in, in the Olympics. They'd had some heavy losses in the lead-up to it. But since then, in, in November last year, a very big ray of sunshine emerged uh, uh, off the back of, of a couple of other uh, lesser wins with uh, with an absolute hiding of Sweden at Amy Park. So has that really lifted your hopes and uh, and expectations uh, for for the Matildas' uh, expectations themselves uh, in in the World Cup uh, um, later in the year? Um, I'm not sure about lifted my expectations. What that Sweden game did for me more so really reinforced the way that I think uh, the Matildas under Tony Gustafsson, how they're best utilised, how they're most effective 
um, in the way that they go about things. That game, in the aftermath, Tony Gustafsson in his post-game press conference actually talked about how he wasn't actually a fan of how the opening half an hour went of that game. And if you recall back to it, it was a real arm wrestle in the opening exchanges and a couple of bounces go um, the Swedes way. They could have taken the lead, the lead. But when Sam Kirk got that opening goal and the, Matil- and the Matildas were able to play a more counter-attacking, uh, rebounding style of football against the Swedes. And they were really able to play uh, with a bit of freedom running right at uh, the European foes. You really saw just how lethal uh, they can be in those circumstances and with the three-goal second half. So to me, it really reinforced the kind of um, performances that if they go right, we can expect to see from uh, the Matildas at the um, Women's World Cup. And really, it's a game plan, I guess, that if they can get through the group stage, they might actually perform better against better, better, more high-profile opposition that, well, frankly, want the ball more and they're going to be able to hit on the counter. Joey, just moving on to FIFA and the World Cup more broadly for a second. The men's uh, edition is in the rearview mirror now, and it's been pretty apparent that uh, the governing body have turned their attention to the women's one in the past couple of weeks. Uh, noises are that the first game is going to be, or the Matilda's first game, second of the of the tournament, uh, is going to be moved from the Sydney Football Stadium uh, to the Olympic Stadium in uh, or Homebush, not quite Western Sydney, but Homebush. Uh, FIFA have said this week they want to bring 1.5 million spectators through the gates, so that seems like a pretty free uh, 40,000 additional uh, to get through there. Is it, a, is it a case of FIFA once FIFA gets on this one? Pretty much, because I believe that this is the actual first tournament, uh, World Cup tournament that FIFA is completely running the organisation of. Previously, uh, we saw for the 2022 Men's World Cup, Qatar set up a supreme organising body which uh, organised things. But moving forward, if if, if I believe, if if I'm recalling correctly, FIFA will run all of them moving forward. So it is pretty much a case of what they want, they will get, because one of the things with the World Cup is that you need exclusionary periods for any stadium that's being used. So it's not like any of the stadiums that have been booked for the Women's World Cup will be being used for anything else um, in the lead into the tournament or during the tournament or even after the tournament for a little while, I think. So certainly is a case of if they want to move games around to the stadiums they're booked, they will get them. And I think while well, they announced uh, half a million tickets have already been sold Uh, for the Women's World Cup today, um, speaking to you on Tuesday the 17th. So I imagine they're going pretty well towards that uh, one and a half million target. And in the lead up uh, between now and the World Cup, there's a plethora of top class international women's football to be played in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Not only do we have the Cup of Nations just announced, but we have the 10 sides that need to go into three. Uh, That'll be sort of between February 18 and 23. But just back to the Matildas, Another three, yeah, high-quality matches uh, for Tony Gustafsson in what's been not a scrambled prep, but a prep that certainly hasn't been positive the whole way along. Uh, is it going to be all cards on the table? Do you think he's got the uh, the ability to be coy up his sleeve or does he still need all the time that he's got uh, at his disposal? Uh, well, looking, I reckon we are going to see pretty high-strength squad for this coming February window because it, it was a refrain that he picked up um, even during 2022. I think it was in the lead-up to the Spain and Portuguese series about how everybody was talking about how it was uh, the, the Women's World Cup was 12 months away, it was a year away, and he was looking at it more through the prism of, well, for him, it was just, uh, I think it was six or seven um, international windows between them and the Women's World Cup, basically six or seven camps, and he needed every single camp possible to try to figure out what he wanted to do. So I imagine with, in theory, I think it's just two camps now before the Women's World Cup itself properly. You've got this February window and then the farewell game that is being going to be played in Melbourne um, later in this year. I can't imagine there will be scope for too many bolters uh, from the blue. Injuries, of course, might mean that some players uh, cannot travel. I mean, somebody like Adyata Wyman, um, with her broken um, thumb or thumb or finger, something's on her hand, he's broken. Uh, if she was going to get picked before, she won't be now. So maybe there's a scope for somebody like a Casey DeMont to force their way in as a late uh, potential bolter. But if we are going to see any experimentation or any fresh faces, 
I would imagine they're more likely to get Scopus train on players than actual members of the squad. And what do you make of Gustafsson's remarks at the press conference earlier in the week that um, that that the this, the nations that have been selected for this Cup of Nations, Spain, Czech, the Czech Republic, or Czechia, as the, the football Australia insists on calling them, uh, and Jamaica uh, have been chosen to to mimic almost the the, the countries Nigeria, the, the Republic of Ireland, and Canada that will be playing against them. Uh, how, how do you uh, weigh that um, that comment up against the reality? Well, every international team is different. And, I mean, if you're looking at it in terms of tiers, you're to maybe lob the Spanish and the Canadians into the same high-tier level. And they do play, quite frankly, quite different football. Spain, of course, in their great tradition, more possession-based. We had a chance to see Canada recently, and they're much more defensively sound. However, what I think he's more talking about there is the fact that this will be somewhat of a group stage sort of replication. In fact, it, even shorter distances uh, between the games and they actually will get at the group stages. But three games back-to-back in quick succession, quick turnarounds, he'll get the chance to see, well, how his players respond in terms of fatigue and load management, how much maybe rotation does he need to do between the games at the Women's World Cup. That's the sort of stuff that um, he'll be seeing this specially selected unit will help him prepare for um, in around six months' time. And just one before we let you go back on the on the actual organisational side of of the tournament, uh, Willem asked you the question uh, about the, uh, the 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 change of venue for the the opening match against the Republic of Ireland from uh, the Sydney Football Stadium to Homebush. Uh, now we know that each state government needed to nominate venues for the tournament well in advance and that, uh, you know, we are a, a, a show that records the podcast out of Melbourne. So, you know, we're, we're acutely aware of, of what appears to be the lack of attention uh, that the uh, the domestic or the state government, at least in Victoria, paid to to its own bid and uh, and only put aside Amy Park as, as a venue. So, so we're seeing a, an argument here that uh, the the stadium at Homebush will, will fill with uh, uh, the, the relocation, is there any possibility that an argument can be mounted to move the match against Canada, which by all accounts is, well, it's the last match of the group. Um, it's uh, it's going to be a critical match, no matter um, whether we're, we're coming into it off the, the back of a couple of good results or otherwise. Uh, if you look at the, 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 the nature or, or at least of the scenario with the MCG right now, uh, the AFL hasn't released its fixture for, for that deep into the season. The matches on a Monday night and seven are the free-to-air broadcaster of the Women's World Cup. So surely if FIFA and the Victorian state, state government have got a will to do this, then there, there has to at least be a conversation around an attempt to make it happen. I think you could have the conversation, but just cynic, cynic me as well, maybe growing up in Melbourne, seeing the power that the AFL has, um, I don't think it would happen simply because the, it's not just the game itself. They need to make and see FIFA's regulations dictate that there's an exclusionary period around any of these stadiums being used. They're, they have to be empty and not used for anything else for a requisite period around games at a World Cup. And even if you could convince the uh, AFL that you'd be, at, we only need it for one night and it's not going to affect your schedule, um, there's the exclusionary period of around it, which FIFA would demand in the AFL. I cannot see a scenario in which the AFL, especially given that they've got their own AFL women's competition, which they're trying to push forward in not just the broader public's eye, but especially um, junior girls in that battle for junior participation. They're not going to want to do any favours to potentially having, well, what, an extra 20,000, 30,000 young girls decide they want to play soccer rather than footy here in Melbourne by getting along to the MCG and watching Sam Kerr play. So mm-hmm. it would be very difficult. And the Victorian government also would probably they've got a long 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 term contract with the AFL to host the grand final um, in Melbourne we know how important that is for them the AFL has taken the grand final on the road twice now because of the covid pandemic so if you had the Victorian government coming and telling the AFL 
actually, we need you to vacate the MCG for X amount of time. So the Matildas can play there. I imagine you'd probably get a response from the AFL. All right, well, we'll take the great. You've broken one contract with us. We'll go and take the grand final somewhere else for this year. And we'll, we might start shopping it around again. So I don't imagine that that's a battle the Victorian government is want to, going to want to fight. Yeah, well, if, you know, if the New South Wales state government uh, have managed to convince the NRL and Channel 9 to shuffle their state of origin around and they're not the most broadcaster of the Women's World Cup, then then, uh, you know, I, I just hope that the AFL, uh, you know, we're never going to expect them to, to get on board with it. But um, but you wouldn't think that they've got the combined clout of, uh, of the state government and, and FIFA. But that's a conversation for another day, I reckon, Joe. I think we could talk for another half an hour about that, mate. But hopefully it won't be the end of it. I'm, you know, just personally hoping we can whip up a bit of a bandwagon of support for that argument to, to at least uh, to get it out there in the public discourse. Joey, look, thanks for, for coming on, mate. It's gone uh, really quickly. Um, always good to, to have a chat to you. We'll, we'll look for that article in the in the Guardian uh, tomorrow when it drops uh, on on your analysis of of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the international uh, uh, matches that are played uh, in Australia for for both uh, uh, the Matildas and the Socceroos and uh, mate we'll uh, we'll get you back on the show again real soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Always a pleasure. And of course, your podcast, the National Curriculum. Uh, I should have mentioned, Joe. I'm really enjoying that, mate. Uh, yeah. A different type of cerebral podcast and uh, <laughs> informative and funny at the same time, my friend. Uh, we, we, we like to talk a bit and we like to have our talk chats about football and mm-hmm. tomatoes and other things. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Joey Lidge from The Guardian, from ESPN, from uh, lots of good publications, uh, but it's always a good quality football that he's talking. Okay, stick around after the break. We're going to talk to Jonathan Wilson from The Guardian. It's about the midway point of the English Premier League. He has got some... Uh, well, Jonathan always has some wonderful views on uh, subjects related to football, in particular analysis of the game. So stick around. He's next on Box to Box. But it's going to buy hot spaces. Okay, summer. It's right in the middle of summer. I know, Edge, you're in Bangkok. It feels like summer all the time over there, but we've been in Melbourne getting some searing temperatures. If you've been watching the Australian Open tennis, they had to stop the tennis uh, today as we record because it was so hot. But uh, I'm just loving the barbecue with... Uh, my Weber smoke fire out there and the herbs and spices from Hoyt's uh, um, adding the flavour to the summer barbies. Mate, what is the beautiful Cheryl uh, uh, organised spice-wise when it comes to uh, the, the Vandendron um, barbecues at home, Willow? Uh, well, a surefire way to get yourself kicked out of a family barbecue at my house is to call my mum by, uh, by not her, her surname, but that's okay. Uh, what does she put on there? Um, a bit of Cajun spice mix on the uh, on the Greek chicken mm. always goes well, straight from Hoyt's. Yeah. Um, there's been a bit of bolognese going on lately. Not a not a summer special, but always good with the the bay leaves from Hoyts as well. Uh, yeah. So plenty going on. It's been uh, yeah, it's been a, a feast yeah. as usual. Yeah, no, actually, those Cajun spices, you just got to mix up the individual spices from Hoyts, get the value packs and uh, and the sachets, and you're away. I mean, those ties would be loving Hoyts, wouldn't they, Edge? Oh, they, they do. They especially like the chili sachets. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. what, the Thai community in Melbourne just goes into the, each of those independent supermarkets or, or Woolies and Coles, and they just uh, go for the uh, the grand chili. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. They just they oh, can't oh, get enough of it, Rob. Yeah, I know, mate. And I was in there getting the big sort of uh, four-litre tub of chili, dried chilies, when I was in there with my mate Johnny Accardo down at the Moravian factory just before Christmas. So get into Hoyts, get into Coles, get into Woolworths, and as Edge said, the all all the good independent supermarkets because you will be happy if you fill your pantry up with Hoyts. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, anyone who listens to this show and has done over the last, what, 370-odd episodes uh, will know that we are regular listeners to The Guardian Football Weekly and readers of The Guardian as well. And and one of the, the stalwarts and and regular fixtures, both uh, on the podcast and in that publication that we uh, we read and listen to every week, is our next guest, Jonathan Wilson. And, Jonathan, it's been a long time. Uh, we wanted to have you on the show, and, uh, and we welcome you. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Thanks very much for, for inviting me. Not at all. And uh, to talk about the Premier League in general, we're, we're nearly at that halfway point. Um, but this weekend's uh, uh, round of matches uh, is uh, is really mouthwatering and, and could be a defining weekend in terms of the entire title, the Premier League title. Is that how you see this weekend coming up? Um, sort of yes and sort of no. I, I, I feel these last two weeks have been... Uh, yeah, last weekend was 
was an incredible weekend in terms of twists and turns. This weekend, the fact that you've got Arsenal v Manchester United, the fact that you've got Liverpool versus Chelsea, and the, the bottom end of the table, the fact you've got West Ham versus Everton, they all seem like key fixtures. Um, so yeah, it, it's one of those weekends that you know, I'm waiting for the call this afternoon to find out which game I'm, I'm going to be sent to, and I'm genuinely excited by that call. Um, and yet at the same time, there's part of my brain saying we're not even halfway yet. Or yeah, some teams are halfway, but the, the, the top sides are one game off halfway. And I, I, I wonder if the World Cup has, has slightly skewed our perceptions of the calendar. That we come back from a World Cup, um, and partly because you know, the World Cup, you have the, the very immediate drama in every game. I mean, okay, maybe the first group game or two doesn't matter, but after that first week of the tournament, every game has a huge amount of riding on it. And we're sort of trying to transpose that onto the domestic season and I wonder if we're almost treating this as, a, as, as the run-in already when actually we're we're nowhere near the run-in um, and so yeah I was sort of thinking eight points does the Arsenal's lead it does seem a lot but 20 games to go maybe it isn't quite as decisive as it seems um, so yeah I, 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 I'm simultaneously excited by it at the same time trying to say there's still an awful lot of football to be played. You were at the game, I believe, at the weekend where the, one of the biggest talking points came out, Jonathan. That was the the, the incident with uh, Marcus Rashford in the uh, in the in the Manchester derby. I'd, you've you've written about it for the for the Guardian, and and look, I think there's been quite a lot already said about uh, about that decision. I, I wanted to ask more about a, a more general comment around. What VAR has done, or in this case, you know, VR was was not existing, but the way players now react to decisions, um, you know, they seem to bringing VAR was meant to, I suppose, make things a lot more clear on the pitch, uh, make make more decisions, and, and potentially take some of the intensity out of, you know, you you remember Keane and you know United players and other gangs of players ganging up on referees but it almost seems to be worse now doesn't it like every time there is any kind of controversial decision you've got both sets of players absolutely going nuts on the pitch and the referees in a pretty pretty bad position have you you noticed that kind of transition on the pitch yeah i think that's definitely true over the last year or so that that you are seeing referees being being surrounded with pressure being put on them and i i think well, I mean, it's understandable that, that now we've we've learned that fairly minor contact in the box in some circumstances is is going to be given as a penalty. Um, I don't think uh, that VAR has reached a level of maturity yet. That you, I mean, you know, the, the other sport I watch a lot of is cricket. Um, and I, you know, when DRS first came in, it the first three or four years were there were some odd decisions, and now I think everybody's so comfortable with the with the process. So I think there is still a process of evolution going on. However, having said that, I think the big difference between the two and, and DRS, I think, has improved behaviour on cricket pitches enormously. And that's because yeah, you, you go up for for an edge or you go up for an LBW, and the umpire gives it not out, and then you, as a fielding side, you have to make the decision: how confident are we in this? And if you get that wrong. It's obvious, and and there's definitive answers. I mean, you can say that that uh, ball tracking isn't quite definitive, and you have umpires call, but everybody knows what those parameters are. But an edge is is as definitive as you're ever going to get with, um, with with, with Snicko and whatever. So, sort of, yeah, you can see pretty definitively whether it's been an edge or not. In football, so much is subjective that it's almost as if VAR's had the opposite impact. That players are saying, "Yeah, go and have a look at it. Look at it again," because they know that on a replay screen. With the pressure of the crowd, with somebody shouting in their ear, the referee might change his decision. And and so the argument previously was always there's no point shouting at the ref because he's never going to change his mind. Well now, yeah, maybe maybe he will change his mind. So I think that's an issue football's really got to deal with. And I, I think the the football authorities, FIFA, UEFA, and, and and the Premier League and the FA, they have to really crack down on on dissent and say you know as soon as there's any kind of crowding of referees. It's got to be mandatory bans, and I think that's why it's a good thing. I mean, Arsenal seem to be the club we've been picked out, but I, th- I think it's a good thing that we're now starting to see clubs being penalised for failing to control their players. And one 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 man who's controlling his players in a positive way is Ten Hag. I think that's the eighth or ninth win in a row, and and they 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 stopped a, a very poor run of form against City. Our last time out was was a humiliation, and we were all questioning or some of us were questioning whether Ten Hag was 
um, cut out for the job. You've, you've, you've spoken at length in your columns and on uh, Guardian Football Weekly about United and their, 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 strat- their strategy and tactics on the pitch with or without certain uh, high-profile forward players. But what did you see on the pitch there for, for, from, you know, there's, there's just the, the change in in their approach versus, you know, under Solskjaer or, or some of the other people that have come uh, since Sir Alex? Well, I mean, Solskjaer's record against City was was actually pretty good because where mm. where Solskjaer was successful was at sitting deep and, and striking on the break. So Solskjaer's record in big games was was much better, you know, in relative terms, was much better than than against weaker sides. So I think where Solskjaer really struggled was, I mean, you, uh, you think of the Europa League final against uh, Villarreal, where they they just didn't seem to have any idea how to break Villarreal down, and that was always my criticism of Solskjaer that that the uh, the organisation of attacking against a, a set defence was not of a level that it needed to be for, for a club like United. Um, so I, I think Ten Hag um, is much better at that. I think he is a much more modern manager than Solskjaer. I think you, you look at what he did at Ajax and, and uh, it's all about the organisation. And when we talk about organisation, I think there's a tendency to think we mean the defence, but it's the defence and the attack. Uh, and And... Defensively, they were they were very good on Saturday, and I think they they had the humility to to realise that City is still man for man a, a better side, a better squad. Um, they yeah they sat deep, they they attacked very intelligently. I thought on the counter of the first half, United were the better side, and then the beginning of the second half, City came back, and and when they scored, I, I assumed City would go on to win it, and I was sort of preparing to write a piece about. Yet again, we've seen City squad is has this great depth. They can bring Grealish off a bench, and he can score. In the same way that in the league game against Chelsea, come off a bench and, and teed up Mar as another substitute for the winner, and, and, and so you know, probably saying this is why City may well outstrip Arsenal because they they have that depth and they have those options off the bench that Arsenal maybe don't have. Um, and then City did that thing that Guardiola sides do of of conceding goals in quick succession and. and Although there's all the, the doubt, and, and you know, I don't think the Rashford goal, the, sorry, the, the Fernandes goal should have stood. Um, but that goal and then the, the, the Rashford goal, uh, the, the winner, both of them come from um, balls played in behind the defensive line. That is what Guardiola has been paranoid about for you know, a dozen years now. Um, and that's where you see this, this fascinating tension within City that. Um, Guardiola has said in the past that, that when, when his side wins the ball back, he likes to play 15 passes to get set. And what he means by that is to say, when we finally go forward, we're, we're set up so that if we lose the ball, we're ready to, to, to deal with a counter-attack. But the way that Haaland plays, you've got to get the ball forward to him quickly. Um, and, and you saw that in the Community Shield, that Haaland kept making runs and City weren't playing. And they, they've sort of slowly sorted that out. And Haaland obviously... what. 20, 21 goals, is it now, in the league? But there's, yeah, there's two issues there. So one is his lack of involvement in general play. So I think it was 19 passes on, on Saturday. Uh, I think you look back at uh, the equivalent fixture last year when, when City won 2-0 very, very straightforwardly. And I think the fewest passes or fewest touches anybody had on the City side that day was was 70-odd. So you're talking about a factor of four different. So if, if Holland's not getting involved in... in, in in those passing movements that give City the control that Guardiola craves, you're trying to do that with 10 players. And obviously that that is much harder. Uh, and equally, if his great strength is running on the balls played quickly, and that is not how you're used to playing, that creates a major tension. Now, it may be that in the big European games where City have, have failed, um, playing the ball forward quicker, being that bit more direct, is what will give them the edge. And it will give them goals from nowhere, which is the thing that, you know, City to win games always have to dominate games. But as soon as City come under pressure, they, they don't win. Uh, it may be that, 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 that this flips that around. But where I think there's a huge concern is the thing that Guardiola is, is, has been so troubled by over the years, those balls in behind the defensive line, the reason he wants to play that controlling football to stop that is precisely the way they got undone on Saturday. It's precisely the thing that using Holland the way he wants to be used, it's precisely, it's precisely the sort of vulnerability that will that will make worse. Jonathan, it'd be remiss of me to not talk about the club that I'm most interested in generally, which is Arsenal. Um, 
uh, you know, we meant we, we mentioned Arteta earlier on, and I was thinking about this today, just how you know Arteta is like this lone example, almost not not lone literally, but of if you give a manager time, then good things can happen. And I was just wondering whether you know that that could have any impact on the likes of whether it's you know Graham Potter uh, or any of the other people that you might mention in the in the so-called stat sack race obviously the stakes are high in the premier league you know football management is weird it's not like any other type of employment it's so schizophrenic and erratic the rules just don't don't apply but do you do you think there is credence in the sense of arteta was given time therefore arsenal became good or do you think there's just a lot more nuance and that, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you can't just apply a, bl- a blanket rule there, if you understand my meaning? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general terms, managers should be given more time. Um, I think it's absurd that you you don't give managers time to learn on the job. Uh, having said that, I think there are occasions when you can see that something just isn't working. And when that's the case... Yeah, you have to act sooner rather than later. So, it, it, it yes, you've got to take on a case by case basis. But at the same time, I think the football is is too impatient, and it's absurd that you we have a situation where, as soon as anything goes wrong, the first instinct is well, if we sack the manager, that will probably put things right. And that's almost become it's almost become a superstition. You know, that's that's not logical thought through um, management or leadership. That that is that's um, you know it's 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 dancing around the maypole to try and ensure the harvest's good. You know it's it it, it a lot of the time for, yeah you replace one manager with with somebody who whose record is essentially the same. There's no real reason to believe that manager will be any better. They're just a different face. And and I can get you know if you're ten games from the end of the season. You're in a relegation battle. Your form's dropped off a cliff, and you think, right, we need a short, sharp shock just to just to jerk this into life, just to get us that two or three more wins we need to stay up. I sort of get why teams are attempted by it. Um, I think if you're Chelsea, um, I think a rational way of looking at Chelsea would be to say, is Graham Potter the problem at this club? And I think any rational look at that would say. He's certainly not the biggest problem. Uh, the problem Potter has is he's never coached at that level, so there's always going to be doubts there, and particularly when his start is bad. There's a tendency to think, well, he's just not cut out at this level, which may be true. Um, where I think things could come pretty become pretty sticky for Potter pretty quickly is if fans continue to chant for, for Abramovich. The new regime may think, well, we don't want them going against us. We need to do something to stop that. Um, they probably... The regime probably is, uh, the, you know, the, the Bowley ownership is probably insulated to an extent at the minute by the fact they're spending enormous amounts of money. And, and that's an easy thing to turn to fans and say, look, what do you want? We're, we've spent 350 million quid or whatever it is since we since we arrived. Um, but as you've seen at Everton, spending money is is no guarantee that fans will will, will continue to have sympathy. And it may be that that, that, that runs out. All right, Jonathan, thank you very much, mate. We're, we're really grateful for your time. Um, it's been great chatting to you and uh, we'll uh, hopefully, mate, we'll, uh, we'll get you back on again at some point uh, in the not too far distant future. Yeah, cheers. Thanks very much. Jonathan Wilson from The Guardian, The Guardian Football Weekly. If you haven't read his uh, work or, uh, or listened to him on the podcast, uh, then do yourself a favour and get, uh, get that sorted out really quick. Okay, stick around. Walk Up Corner next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Let's jump onto this Women's World Cup corner because it's almost upon us. But three of the groups are still missing a party member. Groups D, E and F they are. We're going to find out who's going to join them in New Zealand uh, between February 18 and 23. So... Get your pens and pencils and textures, markers and paper ready. One spot is going to come from Portugal, Cameroon and Thailand. All corners of the globe covered there. These games are going to be played in Hamilton. Portugal are already in the 
final, if you like. So they're a step ahead uh, of Cameroon and Thailand. Those two nations need to play uh, to then reach Portugal in the final, if you like. Michael, uh, the Portuguese battled away at last year's Women's Euros, finished bottom of their group of Sweden, Netherlands and Switzerland. But would you say they're in the box seat here? They are in the box seat only because European football is a lot stronger in the women's uh, game than Africa or Asia. We know Thailand's uh, no slouches. They've been improving... Uh, significantly over the last year, but I don't think they're going to have enough. Uh, Cameroon, they could turn up and win both games 10-0 or lose 5-0. So um, we'll just have to wait and see uh, what comes along there. But Portugal, just on the strength of women's European football, even though they finish the bottom of their group, they'll be in the box seat to, to get through, I would think. One team will come from the group of Senegal, Haiti and Chile. Again, like Portugal, Chile are further, a step further advanced there in the final. Uh, Senegal and Haiti will play off to meet them. And Rob, these games are going to be played in Auckland. Again, Chile uh, in the box seat. And a little bit of word this week that uh, the Australian men's national team had reached out to Chile. We've got a pretty solid, if lopsided, recent history with. Uh, friendly, that one was knocked back, uh, but that's irrelevant in terms of this discussion. Uh, this is about the women. Chile, are they going through? Well, look, if the the most recent iteration of the Men's World Cup's anything to go by, then, you know, there, there's boulders that come from the blue, and, and Chile wouldn't be a boulder in the Men's World Cup, of course, but, you know, in, in, beyond the the sort of the 15th to 20th ranked nations in the world, you, you'd, uh, um, you, you don't get that sort of... Um, clear form guide, but uh, I'd suggest that I think you mentioned Haiti there. They're uh, renowned for the voodoo dolls, mate. I might think they might be getting the pins out uh, ready to, to get a bit of uh, you know luck on their side. Michael. Well, Haiti, I was just about to say, Rob, they'd have to be the sentimental favourites, wouldn't they? Haiti as a country has been through absolute hell with uh, mm. the devastating earthquake uh, uh, a fair while ago now, but the recovery from that has been incredibly difficult for them. They had a lot of um, social disruption and political chaos in Haiti. So um, out of all that, their women's team have got a chance at the World Cup. So surely uh, the neutrals might get uh, behind Haiti. But you'd have to say, uh, Willem, that Chile are well and truly in the box seat to go through. The final spot is going to come from a group of four. So two traditional semifinals, if you like. Uh, now we're going to go rattle, rattle around the table quickly. Question without notice. Derek, please give me a nation that starts with P because I can assure you they're all in this group. Portugal. Portugal. No, they're in the other group. Rob, rhymes with Europe. Panama. Oh, uh, Paraguay. Paraguay. They're in there. Panama are also in there. And Michael, uh, not too far from where you are currently. Three oh, it's Papua New Guinea. I uh, didn't do that very well. Anyway, not, too far, not too far from Thailand. Um, yeah, look, you better check your map. Probably closer to Australia. <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of thinking Laos, Vietnam, <laughs> something like that. Malaysia, maybe. As I said, we haven't done it very well. Chinese Taipei against Paraguay. Papua New Guinea against Panama. Uh, and while this is all going on, there's going to be six associated friendlies in and around these games. Portugal and Chile, in addition to their serious games, are going to warm up uh, against New Zealand and Argentina. Uh, and then, cruelly, the sides that bow out uh, of the little mini tournament we have here are going to hang around and play uh, New Zealand-Argentina, which, Rob, would be deflating. But it's all before us. That's an exciting little tournament. New Zealand, uh, Hamilton and Auckland are going to warm up for their uh, for their mm -hmm. hosting duties. And, um, yeah, three of the ten are going to be happy. The rest go home. Yeah, look, some of these final uh, qualifiers, as we saw uh, against the UAE and Peru, are some of the most exciting games. They're just desperate. Oh, yes. uh, uh, they they go to, to extra time. They go to penalties. Uh, no, they're, they're some of the most fun games to watch, Edge. They're going to be fantastic, really, really great. Those uh, communities in New Zealand won't know what's hit them. And mm -hmm. there'll be some, uh, there's going to be some amazing footage and atmosphere and scenes. So mm -hmm. can't wait to, to absorb all of that. Ripper. All right. Well, well done, boys. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you're enjoying the show uh, uh, as we get it out every week. Please uh, make sure you subscribe to Box to Box, Stoppage Time Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS, uh, uh, as Guetta Trisoldi did uh, during the week when we acknowledged his article. Thank you, Guetta. Um, more of that to come. Uh, like us on Facebook. Make sure you give us a rating. That's what we'd love a rating. We've got some fa fantastic five star ratings. It helps us, you know, get more listeners and pump this thing up. And, uh, and well, most importantly, of all, join us throughout the week as all those podcasts drop. And we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.